Jesus lived and worked in a very hostile environment. And I think even those of us removed some 2,000 years from that point of time, it's fairly obvious to that, obvious that that is the case. Constantly, throughout his teaching career, until his martyrdom on the cross, he faced unrelenting criticism, subtle microaggressions, and blatant threats on his life. Even though his kingdom was all about love, not about getting political power or popularity, many felt threatened. And threatened people often say and do extreme things, even violent things. How do we live and work in a world like that? See, we are commissioned by Jesus to carry on his ministry, uh, basically in a war zone where might is confused as right and the truth is whatever you spin it to be for your own advantage. Jesus' love and his genius in teaching just shines out through every line in the Gospels, but especially, I believe, in this passage called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, before proceeding, let's, let's remind ourselves of something that, that should be obvious, but sometimes isn't, and that is the Sermon on the Mount is not an entrance exam as to who is accepted in the kingdom. Notice that Jesus begins with the Beatitudes in which he gives the kingdom to all, even the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek. The kingdom is the grace of God given to a broken world. And Jesus said, all you have to do to get into the kingdom is want it. Want it bad enough that you would forsake the kingdoms of the world. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice, for they will be filled. Now, the passage we're going to consider now talks about oaths, swearing oaths. And at first glance, that it seems to be a bit out of place. I mean, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount has already discussed the, the obvious problems of hostility in this world, things like persecution and, and murder and, and lust. He's, he's covered those. Those are obvious signs 
of a hostile environment. But then he moves on to more subtle things that may at first not seem that significant, like oath-taking. I mean, seriously, what could be wrong with that? Once again, Jesus is contrasting a traditional teaching with a key principle of the kingdom. Let's consider Matthew 5, starting with verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. And you can just imagine people standing there going, yeah, amen, amen. You know, where are you going with this, Jesus? But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. But notice this closing line. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. That should tip us off to the seriousness of this teaching. It may not sound like much to us, but part of the reason for that is because we're, we're a little ways removed in time and place from when Jesus said this, and we may not can't catch the, the nuances and the, the meaning that would have been obvious at the time. If we think about it, however, we all recognize that Jesus is talking about the way people talk and some things never change. You see, in Jesus' kingdom, talk is not cheap. Words matter. Truth speaks for itself. By contrast, the way of the world is to always spin, always have an angle, maybe even a conspiracy theory to manipulate or obscure the truth rather than reveal it. Words are weaponized for the purpose of destroying someone. I've seen a few interviews and press conferences exactly like that. In Jesus' day, Swearing by the temple was a little like name-dropping. No, it, it really was a lot like name-dropping. It was like dropping the name of God, you know. Probably the closest uh, comparison, closest example in modern times that I can think of is, have you ever heard somebody who say, who was, you know, maybe getting a little on the defensive or, or trying to impose their view on someone else, say, as God is my witness. This was kind of the same thing. You see, swearing by the temple, name dropping, uh, sounding you know, like, like you have the authority of God somehow behind you. 
is a way of manipulating others. It's not really a way of proclaiming the truth. It's, it's more about power and position. While openly saying the name of God would be breaking the third commandment, um, you know, people in Jesus' day you know, would kind of substitute swearing by the temple or other things. Jesus says it matters how you talk because it reveals your heart. Authenticity is the underlying principle that Jesus is getting at. If your heart is on the side of the kingdom, you don't need spin, swearing, name-dropping, defensive explanations, or manipulative slogans. If you're on the side of truth, you don't have to bend the truth. You don't have to puff yourself up or put someone else down. And here is the crucial point. People of the kingdom will often be the recipients of these hostile microaggressions. But instead of escalating the hostile environment, their yes is yes, and their no is no. There's no need to puff yourself up. No need to claim more authority than you have. God really doesn't need us to defend him or explain him. The truth speaks for itself. Moving on to the next verse, verse 38. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Eye for eye, and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, it's easy for us to miss the context. I just love the children's story this morning uh, with the, uh, the winsome way, you know, that the, the warm fuzzies uh, win out over the uh, cold pricklies. Uh, <laughs> Wonderful story. Uh, and I think the, what Jesus is talking to, about here is, is actually very similar. But as we will see, Jesus takes it to uh, another level. I mean, Jesus doesn't just uh, stop with, uh, you have to be, you know, a nice person. Uh, and, and if somebody's cross with you or grumpy, uh, you know, be nice to them and you'll win them over. Jesus is talking into an environment where he knows that the people in front of him are oppressed. They are basically peasant slaves of a corrupt system, 
a corrupt system in the temple, a corrupt system of pharisaical teachings, and certainly a corrupt monarchy. He's talking to people who have very little choice, if any, about their lives. They cannot resist someone who asks them to carry a burden for them for a mile. They dare not retaliate if someone slaps them on the cheek. What do you do when you live in that kind of, his, of hostile environment? And, and let's be clear. Jesus never says that you should never defend yourself. That's not what this is about. This is about a situation where people are oppressed and have no control over their lives. Jesus says, you can control, however, one thing. You can control how you experience this and how you treat the other person. Jesus is still emphasizing that the kingdom of heaven is different, very different from earthly kingdoms. Rather than the usual power, take no prisoners strategies of earthly kingdoms, in Jesus' kingdom, there is no revenge or payback. There is no list of political enemies, and you always try to give more than is required of you. Jesus' method of non-resistance can be understood as a peaceful protest. For example, the first century Jewish man turned the other cheek or went literally the extra mile for a Roman soldier. He forced that Roman soldier to deal with him as an equal, as one who could not be forced to obey him because it was being voluntarily offered. And that would, at least for a moment, completely erase the victim-oppressor roles. Of course, if the Roman took advantage of this, he would be exposed as an evil person rather than just an entitled Roman. Now I have to ask the most dangerous question, and that is, how might that look in today's world? Well, I say this with some <laughs> some trepidation, because in a, in a very real sense, this is not my story to tell, but it is history. And so I will relate the facts. On March 7, 1965, a group of nonviolent protesters led by John Lewis and some of the lieutenants of Martin Luther King Jr. marched to support voting rights for blacks. They approached the bridge leading out of Selma toward Montgomery knowing that their cause was just and that they were likely to suffer for it. They turned the other cheek. They went the extra mile. They ended up in hospitals, jails, and morgues. 
because they dared to challenge the status quo of white supremacy. It became known as Bloody Sunday. And among other things, it revealed the evil and the violence of racism and the entrenchment of white privilege. The day was hailed by President Johnson as a major turning point in U.S. history. Now, I do not have the right to tell people in that situation how to act. It's not my place. And like I said, I don't, I don't think Jesus ever said that it was wrong to defend yourself. But here's an example of how people literally turned the other cheek and went the extra mile and paid the price for it and changed history as a result. I wish I could say that the change had been complete, but we still have a lot of work to do. The kingdom of heaven is not established the same way earthly kingdoms are established. The kingdom of heaven is not established by force, violence, or coercion. It is established by a Messiah who suffers for righteousness rather than bringing vengeance on his enemies. When we turn the other cheek rather than take an eye for an eye, we follow in Messiah's footsteps. But, of course, what then do we do about our enemies? I mean, we still have them, right? Jesus doesn't flinch at that question. He keeps to a consistent strategy, one of going to the heart of the matter. He doesn't just treat symptoms. And treating people as enemies is sometimes a symptom of something subtle and often socially acceptable hate. Matthew 5, starting with verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your enemy. I'm sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I got ahead of Jesus here. Uh, (laughs) Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Love your enemies? Oh, okay, Jesus, now you've really gone too far. I can imagine the crowd pressing even closer to Jesus. Even those who can't get close exclaim with amazement, whisper with curiosity, some gasp with disbelief, and some turn away expressing their, their scorn and their derision to whoever will listen. The world just doesn't work that way, they say. Others say, this Jesus is dangerous, What if everyone believed him? The country would go straight to Gehenna. Living under Roman occupation was difficult. It was difficult even though they had been granted a large measure of self-rule. They had Jewish political leaders, Jewish priests, and even Jewish tax collectors, something that was especially galling. The most visible part of being a Roman vassal, however, was the constant presence of Roman soldiers who could go anywhere 
make people do anything they wanted and generally do what they wanted in the name of Roman sovereignty. So it was challenging when Jesus said, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. But those teachings could at least be interpreted as peaceful protests, a way to show up the Romans, to make it obvious that they were oppressing innocent people. It was a way to peacefully push back against their enemies and remind themselves that in the kingdom of heaven they were free, at least in spirit. Turning the other cheek was radical, probably effective, and admittedly the only way to avoid further violence, but to actually love these enemies was not even in their vocabulary. They chafed under Roman rule. They were scandalized by Roman idolatry and the depraved, self-indulgent living that went with it. So they thought they were right to hate the Romans. And similarly, they also hated the Samaritans, and they hated the Greeks, especially the Syrian Greeks who had brutally persecuted them. Loving them did not seem right or even possible. Some of Jesus' listeners may have sung a certain psalm on occasion. It was a psalm of David the king who bragged about all the righteous hate he had for God's enemies. Psalm 139, 19 to 22. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. A peaceful protest turning the other cheek might be all a devout Jew could do. Unfortunately, it was the only resource, recourse they had, short of fomenting more violence. And there were certainly plenty of Jews willing to do that, but it never turned out well. But actually loving your enemies? That was a stretch. It went against all their basic instincts. It went against the example of David, not to mention other heroes like Jehu. And it certainly went against the agenda of the Pharisees and other religious authorities. Loving your enemy, well, that could be considered treasonous. And that could get you arrested, or worse, by the temple police. Still, there was something so attractive and, and so right about what Jesus was saying. He was consistent, not two-faced. Unlike the Herodian politicians and the corrupt priesthood, Jesus didn't spin the truth. He didn't tell you how loving God was and then take it back by giving a lot of exceptions. Love me or I'll kill you was the message of earthly kings and emperors, so wasn't God like that also? Jesus said, absolutely not. From his first words of blessed are the poor, to his explanation of anger and lust, to his command to turn the other cheek and love your enemies, Jesus was authentic. And he was all about love, all 
love, no exceptions, not just for a few chosen ones, but for everyone, everyone. Love even your enemies, he said. So, if the kingdom of heaven was all about love, even for your enemies, it was surely the most radical, the most amazing, the most accessible, and the most desirable kingdom in the universe. It's easy to hear the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus raising the bar on commandment keeping. Certainly he shows how the great eternal principles behind the log go deep. They go to the heart, not just the outward behavior of people. So heard one way, Sermon on the Mount can be intimidating. No one in this life can live up to it, at least not perfectly. But what if Jesus didn't mean it that way? What if Jesus was describing a gift, an opportunity, and an invitation to belong to something truly great, the kingdom of heaven? And what if this opportunity included freedom to be who you are as well as free on-the-job training? Not as a prerequisite, but as one of the many perks of the kingdom. I'll tell you, if that's how the kingdom is, count me in. The problem is, we still expect God to run his kingdom like we would, only perhaps a little stricter. Jesus says, you have heard, but I tell you, my kingdom is different from what you expect. It's a kingdom of true freedom and love, even love for enemies. Jesus continues in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the kingdom of heaven, we are released from hate and free to love. Perfection in the kingdom, listen to this, perfection in the kingdom is not keeping the letter of the law perfectly. Perfection for Jesus is to love all people unconditionally no matter what group they belong to. i got to say that again. Perfection for Jesus is to love all people unconditionally, no matter what group they belong to. That's being perfect in the same way God is perfect. The truth is, we were never created to hate. We were created to love. Hate is something we learn, whether it's racial hate, political hate, homophobic hate, national hate, or even religious hate. Humans teach themselves to hate. And sometimes, just like many of the Jewish leaders, we want our religion and our politics to also teach hate. 
we think it's a necessary evil in order to survive. The real world has limited resources of love and opportunity. So only the deserving, which means only those like us, get any advantage, or so we think. Does Jesus really love and accept sinners? Does he? Notice that Jesus never used the following expression, love the sinner and hate the sin. Maybe he knew it would be an excuse to exclude people. So he just loved. For Jesus, hating a person for any reason was never right or helpful. He may have called out the hypocrites, but he still loved them. He may have cried over Jerusalem because of her sins, but that's because he loved his people so much. The way of the world is slavery. Slavery to the impulse to hate in order to protect yourself and those you love. It's a dark way to live. It's a zero-sum game, meaning someone has to lose in order for someone to win. But Jesus offers us a way out, a way to the light of his kingdom. He offers us freedom, freedom to love, freedom to give grace as if there is no limit because there isn't in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, grace and love are unlimited. It's not a zero-sum game. No one has to lose, and everyone can win. Everyone is blessed. Jesus says, all you have to do is want this kind of kingdom. That's the only entrance requirement. Put another way, if you want to live like there is no limit to love, the kingdom of heaven is for you. But if loving your enemies is not something you ever want to learn, you'll be unhappy in the kingdom of heaven. Truth is, you'll be unhappy no matter where you are. Jesus says, all you have to do is want his kingdom, and he'll take care of the rest. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled.